Hey there, I'm Ian Sherling. And I'm Joanna Chow. And you're listening to Design Shatter. We're talking to creative people, all kinds of creative people, about their work, their process, what makes them get out of bed in the morning. Um, yeah, in our first three episodes of Design Shatter, we're um, talking with people who work in fields that may be underappreciated in society, but are somehow core to our human experience. Um, exploring topics like food, play, and art, um, and how they, um, I don't know, how they interact with our daily experiences. Episode one was all about food. We talked about urban agriculture. Um, go back and listen to that one. Um, but today, episode two, we're here to talk about something fun. Um, we're really, really fun. Uh, talking about play, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, so, to kind of get it kicked off, Joanna, uh, I just have one question for you. What was your play experience like as a My kid? play experience? You know, I actually have really vivid memories of playing on the playground. Um, I remember actively trying to avoid the kickball games, trying to get out of tag or Red Rover, <laughs> pull your arm out of your socket. Um, but in order to avoid these more athletic endeavors, I was often playing make-believe. And I remember, you know, we were koalas living in these high trees or, you know, from TV on a regular basis, I watched um, The Power Rangers, mm. popular 90s show. Go, go. Really <laughs> situates me in a certain era. Um, but I remember having this kind of like identity crisis where, you know, there was this choice to play... Trini, who is the Asian-American female on that show, mm -hmm. obviously I identified. And then there was, you know, the cool girl, the mainstream pink ranger, Kim. And I remember having to choose on a daily basis. Am I going to be Kim? Am I going to be Trini? Um, but it was good fun. It was, you know, my way of maybe getting out some of my aggression. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you beat up some bad guys. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was mostly fun, honestly, because... That was the time when I got to like kick the butts of the boys. <laughs> yeah. And they, they didn't take it easy on me. I got pushed into the wood chips. I got elbowed, Look kicked out. in the leg. Whoa. Yeah. Real kid experiences. For sure. Well, how about you? I mean, you are one of the most playful people I know Whoa. even today. So. Well, I don't know. Play for me now is like non-existent. But uh, as a kid... I remember playing in the sandbox a lot um, until the sandbox turned into a litter box, as it <laughs> often does outside. But the, the other story that, that I often tell is this experience I had. I, I love to explore. Um, so like Carmen San Diego was my thing and geography and kind of just imagining I'm in different places. So I had this snorkel set that I got in Hawaii one year. And I brought it back to my landlocked home of Kansas and uh, waited for a rainstorm. Aww. And the rains came, um, and I had to find a place to use the snorkel set outside. But the only place I could use in a flat place like Kansas is a pothole in my asphalt driveway. <laughs> and so, you know, I wasn't going to let that deter me. So I was opportunistic and got my snorkel set and uh, stuck my head in that pothole and uh, explored the bottom, which was about a centimeter away from my face. That is awesome. That is creativity. But yeah, that. it's it's that it's 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 that thing of uh, a, a kid's mind is an incredible thing, and um, the power of that um, creative energy is something really special. 
And something is around us all the time, and we really wanted to dive into that more. So, all playing aside, today we're talking with our second guest, Kate Took. She's someone who we know well here. Yeah, I'm really excited. She's um, she's a real delight, and you know, in addition to being a landscape architect at Sasaki, she's a former teacher and a passionate advocate for getting more play into our daily lives. Um, she's been conducting research over many years, actually, into play and how it touches so many areas of inquiry, like design, like urbanism, pedagogy, education, um, even equity and social justice. But, you know, at its core, I think Kate really advocates that play is an act of creative expression, which is really what we're all about with uh, Design Chatter. Yeah, I think she opened our eyes to how crucial play is to children's physical, intellectual, and creative development. Um, yeah, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Kate Took, Sasaki's resident play expert, about her research, her background, and how she as a parent gives her children the freedom to explore. Thanks for being here. We're excited to talk about play today. It's um, it's a subject that um, is interesting for us here at Sasaki because um, we've had a whole internship program uh, last summer directed toward this topic. And um, I know you have a couple kids, another on the way. I'm going to be a dad soon, so I'm certainly more interested in play than I've ever been uh, and the idea of this thing. But um, for those of you, or, or for those people who don't know you, I wonder if you can tell us about how you became interested in this space. How did this come about? Because your um, your background, I think, is kind of an, has been an interesting trajectory to learn about how you came to where you are. Sure. Well, thanks, Ian and Joanna. It's a pleasure to be here talking about one of my favorite topics in the world. Um, I really am passionate about play, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Actually, um, I. I grew up in the city, um, like most kids, um, had a sort of wide variety of play experiences. Um, but I was a kid once, and all kids know how to play um, inherently. And when I graduated from college, I graduated with an engineering degree, actually. Um, I was fascinated by engineering as a sort of a study and a practice, um, but I wasn't quite ready to sit down in an office and practice engineering. Um, and I fell backwards into teaching. And I fell completely in love with it um, for a lot of the same reasons as I loved engineering. There was sort of this elegant dance in the classroom where you discover um, where you sort of discover what the problem is, what kids need to know, um, and you figure out what they're missing and what kinds of skills and tools you want to pull from the air to help them solve the gaps and help solve, like find an elegant solution to the problem of what they're trying to learn. Um, and in my last few years in the classroom, I became really interested in what my kids were doing outside my classroom, actually, and how influential those experiences were outside my classroom, 
um, in terms of what they were able to learn in my classroom. And that actually became more interesting to me. I, I realized that um, for my students in um, who were coming from neighborhoods all over Boston, um, many of them tough neighborhoods, um, that that they were so distracted by all of the things that were happening outside the classroom that it was nearly impossible to learn math or science. Um, and that's what brought me back to the world of design. I got interested in how how we as designers can shape the urban environments that youth grow up in, whether they're learning environments or housing environments or just neighborhood streets or playgrounds, schools and schoolyards, um, and how those shape their experiences and their willingness and ability to come into a classroom and um, open their minds to something new to learn. Um, so I turned to landscape architecture for that reason um, and got really excited about shaping urban environments with youth and for youth um, that could help support their learning and growth. So I see myself now as both a landscape architect, but also an educator. I haven't left that behind. I still have a master's in education. I love that field. Um, and I also see myself as an artist and an engineer. So many pieces of my background coming together um, to shape this interest in play. The true multidisciplinary person. <laughs> yeah, um, you've I, lived so many lives already. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. I won't tell you how old I am. <laughs> I, I, I could never guess. <laughs> Don't need to. So um, I wonder if you can educate us on why, why is play important? Why do we need play? Why do kids need play? So... Play is really fundamental to how kids learn and grow. I think um, there's a famous educator, Maria Montessori, who founded a school system that bears her name. Many of you should be familiar with it. Um, and she said, play is the work of the child. And I, I actually, I believe that wholeheartedly, um, that, you know, lots of times play isn't taken seriously. It's something frivolous. It's something that could be done without. Um, you know, there's many eras of history where we thought children should be seen and not heard and really, um, you know, many adults. Um, but the truth is that children explore their world and learn about their world by playing in it. Um, they, you know, through play, they, they learn how to um, creatively express themselves. They learn how to imagine alternative scenarios, which helps with flexible thinking later in life. Um, they test their bodies, they learn about risk and challenge and what the appropriate levels of risk are in different scenarios for themselves. Um, they learn to master fears. They learn about socially engaging with one another and negotiating challenging situations. Um, and all those things are critical elements to children growing up and being healthy, productive members of our society. So what is the, what's our collective story now as a culture? I wonder, to sort of broaden it back a little bit, what's the state of play in our country or in our, our own culture today? Where, where have we come and, and why are we where we are? So it's a, I think it, there's a really long history of play and there's a lot of different ways we could tackle that question. But I think there's this great study in Eng that was done in England looking at four generations of the same family. And they talked to the grandfather and the mother um, and the son. 
about their play sort of ranges, how far they were allowed to go without parents. And the grandfather could go about five miles from home um, and go in the woods and explore the creek um, and go one town over to do errands by himself. Um, the mother was more sort of a neighborhood focus. Um, and by the time you got down to the son, who was seven years old during the study, um, he really couldn't go past his driveway um, without adult supervision. And wow. so you think about like the shrinking radius of play and the shrinking ability of children to explore their world independently, um, which, as we noted, is, is a really important marker for how, um, how they learn. My children today, I think about, you know, I don't actually let them go to the ch playground down the street by themselves. I always go with them. Um, and they're young, but that's a, it's a critical piece of sort of today's society that the, the way we play has been shrunk into these very narrow windows, whether at home or the playground or the schoolyard. Um, there's not a lot of freedom to explore any place to play. There's also, I think, a lot of pressure on today's childhood when you think about um, technology and what that means and how ubiquitous it is for our children. And you think about um, how much time we structure academically for children these days and in terms of structured sports and activities and arts camps. Um, our children are very structured and don't have a lot of free time. There's a statistic that the American Journal of Play put out that children today in America spend just four minutes a day outdoors wow. in free play. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends about 60 to 90 minutes, which still seems like not very much compared to what I enjoyed as a child, um, oh. which was much more like three to four hours of outdoor unstructured play um, and what, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents would have enjoyed. So what happens then if kids aren't allowed to do the work of children to go out there and play and explore their world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's huge consequences, Joanna. There's, um, you know, we know that physically, mentally, and um, emotionally, children are suffering because they can't play in the way that they need to. Um, there's great research about declines in creativity um, measured by uh, a man named Dr. Kim, um, who measured creativity based on Torrance testing. So that's a it's a test that's more accurate than the IQ testing uh, at measuring lifetime creative output. And Dr. Kim found that creativity has been in serious decline since 1980. Um, scores on Torrance testing among children under 18 are just plummeting. Um, and he has directly tied that to the sort of lack of children's ability to just freely play and freely explore. Um, and this has huge consequences for our society, right? You think about how create, creative output is related to entrepreneurship, not just you know design fields, but um, people people just thinking outside the box in whatever field they're in. Um, it has huge consequences for our society. Um, so that's sort of creatively. Um, we know physically children are at risk now. There's an obesity epidemic. One in three children is overweight or obese today in America, um, and that's on the rise still. Obesity has tripled since 1980. Um, so it's, you see that you know, children aren't being able to exercise their bodies freely, and that has a dramatic effect on human health. Um, and then finally, you know, there's, there's a lot of great research about children not being able to take appropriate risks. Um, and when we're protecting our children on these playgrounds that are overly safe, we end up with a group of children who don't know how to take a risk 
um, don't know how to master their own fears. Um, and there's some great research by a woman named Ellen Sandsetter, um, which ties that um, specifically to sort of increasing levels of psychopathology and depression among children and teens. Um, so huge impacts in terms of the physical, mental, and emotional health of our children, and therefore our future society. So I wonder if we can lean into the risk factor that you're talking about a little bit and um, you know some of those more troubling aspects of, of this and maybe talk a little bit about parents themselves and um, just culturally even what's, what's acceptable in our culture um, in terms of how kids play with parents or how parents interact with their kids while they're playing. Your average sort of post and platform plastic playground um, that you see uniformly stamped around America um, is a pretty standard structure. Um, and it's pretty familiar to children and parents everywhere in America. And there's a very familiar model of how children and families interact with those structures. What happens is families arrive and parents stand on the edge either talking to each other or interacting with their cell phones or sitting and drinking their coffee. Maybe. Um, maybe with a baby or something like that, some other member of the family. Um, but mostly children in the sort of 3 to 12 range then go run around on the structure by themselves. Um, and so really there's this model of parents sit and watch and children run around on safe equipment. Um, after an hour or so, time's up um, and children get taken home. And that's a really standard model of interacting on playgrounds today. Do you, would, would you say that that's a function of liability in the people who are designing this equipment? I mean, they're really controlling how we play with kids, it seems like. Absolutely. I mean, I think that uniform kit of parts, the, the you know, post and platform plastic play structure, the safety surfacing, the fence. Um, Susan Solomon, who's a prominent play thinker, has called that the McDonald's model because it's just uniformly stamped throughout America. Um, that uniform kit of parts exists because of liability in America. Um, there's a long history of, of, of lawsuits around play equipment that looked different in the sort of 70s and 80s, um, things that just, you know, maybe took a little bit of a risk. Um, there were lawsuits, municipalities got really nervous, designers got really nervous, and we've ended up with this uniform kit of parts that meets safety standards but doesn't really inspire creative play, doesn't encourage kids to take risks. And there's a whole movement that's moving away from that, which is really exciting. Um, when you look at a lot of modern adventure playgrounds, um, which are growing in popularity in America, have long been popular um, in, in other parts of the world, especially in Europe, um, you see a lot more parents engaging with children because the features are fun, because they're risky. Um, Parents want to help their kids. Kids need a little help. Kids want to invite their parents um, or caregivers to come play with them because it's fun and they can. Um, so there's, there's a, I think there's hope on the horizon. Um, but certainly your standard American playground doesn't meet um, a lot of those goals around mixing generations to play together.
I wonder as a landscape architect, as you are, what, what is the responsibility of a landscape architect or any designer for that matter, creative person, when you think about creating a, um, a different kind of play space for our kids? Well, I think, I think as designers, we need to start freeing ourselves from that sense of liability. And I think um, there are a lot of great models of designers starting to do that. Um, but for a really long time, landscape architects, architects were, were afraid of the liability. Um, and so we were leaning on manufactured equipment where the manufacturer takes on all the liability. Um, and municipalities were encouraging designers to do that because it, the municipalities didn't want the liability of something different. Um, so as long as it was the same as what was being installed down the street or the next town over or three towns over, um, then that felt safe. Um, and there was a certain, um, just a certain sort of complicity among designers and municipalities that that was the easy route and that nobody wanted to touch the potential that a child could get hurt. Um, and I think now there's this this like changing tide among designers and municipalities that 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 methodology and sort of mentality of just protecting children at all cost wasn't actually doing a service to our children and our families. Um, and I think yeah, there's there's just this really interesting rising tide among designers who are willing to take those risks along with municipalities. It has to be a match. You can't have a designer willing to take a risk without the municipality jumping on board and vice versa. Um, but when you find that sort of magic partnership, um, there can be a lot of creativity in playground design. Going back to um, that idea of, you know, the playground being the setting for learning and growth and exploration, you know, you're a teacher, you're a designer. Um, how do you think about building a curriculum of sorts through the physical space so that people, kids, learn what they need to learn in their critical stages of development? It's a great question. I think um, here at Sasaki, we've been using this play framework developed by a woman named Sarah Smilonsky. She was a child psychologist that trained under Jean Piaget, who's a really famous child psychologist. And she uh, theorized that there were four different types of free play functional, which is about physical kind of development and exploration of the world, constructive play, which is about building things and shaping the environment um, and builds creativity and kind of flexible thinking skills, dramatic play, which is when children like take on a role or imagine um, a certain scenario and play that out in terms of role play, and then games play, which is much more about you know games with rules in which children learn cooperation um, and communication skills in particular. And so I think when we think about those as, as a framework um, and use those in design, we can all of a sudden start to think about the playscape as a place where all four of those things can happen, right? They don't happen in isolation, but you know all of those are kind of essential to building the kind of creative, um, you know, risk-taking, challenging um, type of, you know, children that we would like to see. Um, so I think when we think about a playscape as a constellation of lots of different pieces that can all support the growth and development of children, um, and we know from a research standpoint which different features support which different kinds of play and how those will build healthy children, then we have a strong playscape. So Kate and Ian, you're both you know, creatives by profession. This is how you make your livelihood. 
do you find that you incorporate play practices into your everyday lives today? I think it's impossible not to incorporate play into your everyday life when you're a parent. I think I spend at least as much time at my desk designing as I do sitting on the floor, you know, constructing train sets with my children or playing um, all kinds of imaginative play, whether it's house or driving cars around the floor. Um, it's, it's really impossible not to play as a parent. Um, but I think it's a, there's always this tricky balance of um, just playing with your kids and playing as an adult, because um, it's, a, it's a different thing as well. I think um, it's important to, to play on an adult level at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, that there's always a moving target of defining what that really means. Do you think your designs have gotten better since you've been forced to play, since you've become a parent? I think probably because, partially because I've just been exposed to so much, so many more different styles of play. I've started to see the world with new eyes. Um, there's something about the curiosity of toddlers um, that really opens your eyes to how beautiful and amazing the world is and how many questions there are to ask about it. Uh, we can't go down the street without having 25 <laughs> questions, <laughs> um, which is wonderful and, and reminds you of, of how special it is to be unabashedly curious about the world. I think it's interesting. I was thinking about this question in preparation for this and there is a certain point, I think, where we all get to where it becomes less about play and we're just putting more stress on ourselves to perform or to be more professional or mm -hmm. whatever the term is. And, you know, forgetting that play is crucial to um, creativity, mm -hmm. to how we sort of imagine. And in that way, I think we have a lot to learn from kids to sort of expand our own horizons with that. Yeah, but I think there's the, there's something about broadening the definition of play as you become an adult. But I think as, as we grow up into adults, sometimes it's just about finding the things we're passionate about. And that feels like play, you know, finding the things that we want to be creative about that inspire creativity, that that make us like smile and stay up late because we're so excited to solve that problem. Um, some of that, I think, is, is play in the same way. Um, and in the same way that children, you know, cognitively develop through play. I think we as adults, you know, when we're discovering our passion and we're investing in it, um, we're, we're growing cognitively in that same way. Um, and that's, that's playful behavior. see a correlation with um, you know sort of a, a workplace term that you know we hear in the modern workplace of a mentorship of younger staff members even and if we're helicopter uh, project managers or Absolutely. people and we swoop in and do the work for people are, are we are we inhibiting an advantage mm -hmm. um, not only to the project maybe and someone's value and bringing something but kind of personally to that mm -hmm. specific person that we're swooping in to uh, to save yeah there's this whole philosophy of junkyard playgrounds and the 
the idea that you give children real tools, um, functional tools, and those tools have risks, right? So you're, these are these junkyard playgrounds are places where there's literally junk, scrap metal, old tires, you know, bits of lumber left over from construction sites, and you have real tools, and children are constructing their own playscapes with saws and hammers and. Sometimes children get cut. Sometimes they hammer their thumbs. Um, sometimes they set things on fire that they shouldn't set on fire. Um, but they learn that there's these real consequences. Um, and that's an important part of, of growing up, right? That there's, there's, it's not so safe that you're protected from everything because then you don't know what the consequences are and you can never understand that. And I think when you project that forward to sort of the creative industry and project management, you think about, you know, if project managers swoop in and save the day all the time, um, then staff never know what that real consequence is. Um, but they also, I think, we need to expose staff members at all levels to what the real consequence is and that exposure to clients and the disappointment potentially if, if a design problem isn't resolved to the level that we want it to be resolved to. Um, that, has to that has to be really visible and evident. So Kate, given all of this conversation, um, what are your hopes for play? Um, maybe like you personally, but also for us as a culture, for someone who's a, an expert in this field, um, where, where should we be heading? Where do you want us to go? I think that right now, some of the most interesting places to play are happening in cities and their destination playscapes. Right? They're places where children and families might choose to make an adventure to on a weekend, um, but they aren't your average neighborhood playground experience or your backyard play experience. And I think when I think about my hopes for the future of play, it's, it's just expanding and exploding that notion of adventure play, risk-taking, constructive play, dramatic play, really interesting invitations um, in the outdoor playscape. Um, for children, that those become almost almost every day. You know, the ubiquitous pl post and plastic structure we see in every neighborhood playground throughout America is replaced by a unique, contextual, exciting invitation to play um, that's, that's tailored to every neighborhood, to every backyard, to every streetscape, um, and that those invitations happen all the time on the way to school, on the way to the market, um, on the way to a friend's house, and they aren't only things that are relegated to a weekend adventure with a family or a special trip to New York City or um, some downtown. The way you're talking about it makes me think of the adage, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And so the way you're talking about these unique contextual invitations for kids to play, it makes it seem like it's everybody's responsibility mm. to invest in this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think I have a hope. You know, there we worked on a project in Cincinnati, and there was this really magical combination of 
an inspired leadership at the city level, an inspired funding team who was interested in progressive ideas of play, and a research or a design team that was armed with research and ready to implement interesting ideas. And my hope is that that same sort of magical trio can happen everywhere. Um, that that it's not um, it's not foiled by one of those team members um, not being on board with new ideas, um, and and that that there's just a way for that to happen in all projects. So how do we get there? Is there going to be a tipping point where everyone just suddenly realizes how important play is? And and where are we in that whole progression? Do you think that you know the public? the general person understands the significance of this developmental stage? I think there's certainly a groundswell. When you look at kind of where the needle has moved in the last 10 years on play, um, we're definitely moving away from overprotecting children towards an approach that embraces risk a little bit more. Um, But like I said, I think that's really only happening with these enlightened client groups, destination playgrounds, you know, really big projects. Um, and it needs to happen sort of on that that um, groundwork level. I think that um, there are a lot of communities that would be very open to alternative types of play, um, but just haven't seen it and don't know what it looks like. Um, so we as designers have this really important responsibility, I think, to come armed with research and options. Um, all the possibilities could look like this, um, and here's why that's good for your children. Um, and you don't need to just do what's familiar. Um, so sort of breaking um, breaking open the story a little bit, the range of what's possible in terms of people's minds. Well, Kate, thanks so much for talking, educating, I know me a little bit more about play, why it's important and what it is. Um, it's been great having you on. Thanks. It's been an exciting conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks to both of you. So I keep coming back to um, this thing that Kate talked about, um, the Montessori quote, play is the work of the child. And I love that because it really, to me, shows what, uh, what importance this is uh, to a kid, to their development, to their interaction with the world around them, that those experiences put together add up to something really important as someone who grows up. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think she really hits home that these are such critical experiences to our development and really shapes who we are as adults, um, as members of society, as workers. And I think, you know, the biggest thing I took away was that um, there's really value in us as grown-ups also incorporating this energy around play, remembering that we were once children and we were once curious and excited by the slightest thing And I'm trying to find those moments in my own life. And certainly I think this particular project, this podcast initiative that we're trying to kick off, it's the one recess that we have from our everyday work lives every week. And I look forward to it. It stretches a different kind of muscle. Yeah, so I guess a big takeaway here is that place for everybody. 
place for all people. And so next time we're gonna take that energy and, and really nudge it toward arts for all, arts for everybody. So stay tuned for episode three of Design Chatter. Um, it's dropping soon. We'll see you then. Or not. Because <laughs> we're in an audio medium. I get yeah. it. I get it. <laughs>